listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5 in just a moment. Uh, before we are, I want to mention a couple of things to you. Uh, we have our annual Thanksgiving outreach happening in just a matter of weeks. In fact, November 23rd, that is Thanksgiving Eve. What we do is we sign up for different uh, foods. We have turkey, dressing, mac and cheese, green beans, rolls, that kind of thing, sweet teas, pies. And so what we'll do is on November 23rd, gather in Locust Grove at that facility with pans full of food, and we will make hundreds, pushing a thousand, but hundreds of meals for those who are in need in our local community. So I would encourage you, ask you, plead with you this morning, go ahead and sign up for whatever kind of food you would like to bring. The pans are available out here in the atrium at the Next Steps table. So you can grab those today. Make sure you fill these up. The reason we do this is so that we know how much food to prepare. Each one of these pans should have about 12 servings of food in it. And so not, not this much, um, you know, dressing in there, but like an ample amount, enough that you would like. So make sure you grab these, sign up on the website, southpoint.org. This is probably our favorite time. Uh, in fact, somebody asked me this past week, why are we talking about this so much in the coming weeks? Why is this in the weekly Thursday newsletter? Why are we announcing this so much? A couple of reasons. One, because our church loves this time together to serve on those in our community. But secondly, this is this always has year after year a huge impact on those around us. And sometimes we take food to the same people and our goal is not for them to show up on a Sunday or to get anything out of them, it's simply to serve them. So sometimes year after year, like, man, we're taking the same people. They drive a much nicer car than I do and I'm still delivering food to them. Like what's the deal with that? That's not for us to decide. Our responsibility is to feed those around us because uh, that's what Christ has told us to do. And so we reflect the nature of Jesus in doing that. So sign up for that on the website, southpoint.org. Grab a pan, take that home with you. Be there that Wednesday night. Go ahead and put that on your calendar. It's a matter of a couple of hours and impact for that is always huge. And we, we love that, being able to love on those around us. Secondly, if you're new to South Point, thanks for being here this morning. I see a couple of new faces. Make sure you grab a Connect card. It's in the seat in front of you. Fill that out. Take it to the Next Steps table there in the atrium on your way out. And we have a small gift for you, uh, a way of saying thanks for gathering to worship with us this morning. Chris will reach out to you this week. I'll reach out to you this week. And we'll see how we can serve you and your family on the mission of God here. And we'll invite you to join us on the mission of God so you can serve alongside of us, those in this room, those in our neighborhood, and eventually those around the world. So thank y'all for being here this morning. Okay, Daniel chapter five. We're gonna look at a big old portion of scripture. This past week, you may know, it was Halloween this past Monday. And uh, I live in a neighborhood where trick-or-treating is enormous much larger than my appreciation for Halloween. If you want to see my Halloween decorations at some point, you can. I'll show you a picture of them. They were very scary, but not very Halloween-ish. Anyway, Tuesday morning, my kids wake up and Axel had to take my 11-year-old. He had to take the trash can to the road because the, uh, on every single Tuesday, we have trash day. Every other Tuesday, we also have recycling day. So Tuesday morning, we get up. I said, actually, don't forget to take the trash to the road. So he goes to the road. It's about 7.20 that morning. I'm about to take them to school. He comes back in. He says, Dad, you won't believe it. $100 bills are all over the road. And I thought, well, praise God. We've, you know, for, for months, me and Jason have been praying for gold dust to fall from the ceiling, but now we get $100 bills showing up here in the road of, uh, of my neighborhood. So I said, he said, can I, can I give them? I said, absolutely. This is the blessing of God on your life, son. <laughs> and so he goes out there and starts collecting $100 bills. He brings in a $100 bill and it looks just like this. A crisp 100, Benjamin Franklin's picture on it. Now, if from where you're sitting, you're probably like, that's pretty awesome. 
blessings on you, preacher. This is, this is what I'm talking about. You're one of those guys, one of those prosperity guys. And I'm like, yes, yes, I am. One of these guys that has Benjamin's, you know, Benny's all in his front yard. It was amazing. Praise God. And so we gathered together as a family and we read a passage of Jabez's prayer. Uh, and then we, I took him to school. I kid, I kid. If you were closer, you could see what my son saw and understood upon actually going to the street and grabbing some of these $100 bills. You guessed it, these are fake. In fact, in the back, on the back, it doesn't say, in God we trust, it says, in prop we trust. Because these are $100 bills that are used in movies and in television shows. Oh, so there weren't, yeah, that was, so these were all over my, in fact, my son got 17 of them because he thought he was going to be able to, I don't know, buy a Nintendo Switch and a go-kart or something. I'm not sure. But as you look at this from, from the distance you're at, it looks real, right? Like it'd be hard for you to, if I said, what does that say on the back? You'd say, well, it probably says in God we trust. And I would say, sure. Can I buy something? You know, can I trade you this for 520s? And you'd be like, yeah, I guess so, right? Because we're naive. But you'd be like, I, I don't know. Let me get a closer look, right? Now, this is actually a real $100 bill. Somebody gave me this yesterday, not for free. I had to trade them some other dollars and time for it. Uh, but this is actually a real $100 bill. But if you look at these two from where you are, you're like, man, they look almost the same. In fact, on the back, there's a picture of well, this one says Independence Hall. I'm just now seeing this. This one says Motion Purposes. Okay, so on the back, it's the same picture. It's mostly the same. In fact, there's the same little blue lining that goes through here. There's a little blue lining that goes through here. And we've seen this all throughout the book of Daniel, though. The spirit of Babylon presents a counterfeit to the kingdom of God. I told Axel, I called Axel this morning. He was with my in-laws. I said, hey, buddy, where are those fake $100 bills? I need those for a sermon illustration. He said, well, they're in the bathroom in this drawer. He said, he said what are you going to, I said, where are those $100 bills? I didn't tell him what it was for. He said, what are you going to be using those for? I said, well, I'm going to go try to buy some things for mom's car. And he said, oh. And he's a very, a very cautious individual. He said, well, dad, I don't want you to go to jail, and I think you will. <laughs> I said, buddy, I'm just kidding. My kids are messed up. All right. And it's my fault. That's why we don't do parenting series around here. People are like, can we do a parenting series? Not, can we have a guest preacher come in? <laughs> you know? The spirit of Babylon presents counterfeit to the authenticity of the spirit and the kingdom of God. This is our pursuit. And sometimes when, when we don't see this, this real kingdom, we, we don't understand it right now, today, November, whatever it is, 6, 2022, it's like, you know what? That's really awesome. I love the ideal. I love the real, the valuable, the ultimate. But since I can't have that today, guess what I'm going to go for? This counterfeit. My wife is not who I think she should be. She's not the ideal. So guess what I'm going to go for? This image on the screen. My job, I work way too hard. My boss doesn't recognize my potential. He doesn't understand how much I do. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to dial it in at work. Maybe not do my best. Maybe cheat on my taxes. Maybe lean this way, lean that way. We pursue the counterfeit rather than the actual. So that's where we see all throughout the book of Daniel, we've seen this. The counterfeit is presented by the spirit of Babylon. The spirit of God, the kingdom of God is what we should be pursuing. Daniel chapter 5. We're going to pick up. I've got 31 verses to go through. I'm going to hustle while I talk. Y'all are going to hustle while you listen. Good with that? Awesome. We can do it. Daniel chapter 5 begins with this. Uh, and as we see at the beginning of Daniel chapter 5, we get this new king. His name is King Belshazzar. Everybody say Belshazzar. We're going to call him King Billy. Why? Because Aramaic is not my first language, but Southern is. Okay? So we're going to do that. So we're going to move through here. What we've seen so far in the first four chapters, we've seen King Nebuchadnezzar, also known as King Neb, right? Y'all don't pay me to be smart, okay? So we've seen King Neb through the first four chapters. He's gotten older. Daniel has gotten older. He's been there since the exile. And then we, that happened in, as we see on the screen, in some people's t-shirts, 605. So Daniel has been there then since he was a teenager. Then King Neb, according to history, died in 562. As soon as King Neb died, there were two other kings that followed him. 
Then there was this, and they had really short stints. Then there was this other king, the third one in line after King Neb. His name was King Nabonidus. Everybody say Nabonidus. Everybody's like, oh. you know, we start with Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus. Okay, I'm tired of these names. Here's why this is important, okay? King Nabonidus, I'm just, I'm setting this up. On this date, and here's, historians would recognize this as the year, and we can look back, and I don't just say historians as opposed to people who believe the Bible. Biblically-based historians would recognize this as the date October 11th, 539 B.C. Pretty specific. So when we look at this today, we're looking, all of chapter 5 occurs October 11th, 539 B.C. Here's why that's important. Because the very first words that we see here in chapter 5 are the words, King Belshazzar. King Billy. But if we look back historically, there was never a King Belshazzar in all of Babylon's history. Okay? So you're like, wait, which one is right, history or the Bible? This doesn't seem to add up. We know we're going to default to the Bible. But here's what I think is interesting. If you look at the very end of the chapter, it says in uh, verse number 29, he made Daniel the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, here's why that's important, okay? Everybody still with me? Quick history lesson, and then we're going to jump in. Here's why that's important. Because here, in the year 539, King Belshazzar, as he was recognized as king, was only king because of his dad, Nabonidus. Everybody say Nabonidus. He's the real king, living in a separate palace, but he has made Belshazzar, King Billy, king over this area of Babylon. That's why we see right here at the end of chapter 5, Daniel was not promoted to second in the kingdom right behind King Billy, but he's promoted to third. Because in the kingdom of Babylon, King Billy is actually second in command to his dad, King Nabonidus. Now, historians for years have said, okay, so we can't square the Bible with what we've seen uh, archaeologically. But get this. In the past 20 years, what archaeologists have found is that King Billy was actually there in a separate kingdom, in a separate castle from King Nabonidus. And they've actually seen, okay, well, King Belshazzar, he actually did exist man, we are sorry for throwing shade at the word of God for all of these years. They didn't actually say that, but they should have, putting words into their mouth. As the chapter opens, here's why this is important. The kingdom of Babylon is a matter of hours away from ultimate destruction. So October 11th is when all of this party, all of this is going to happen. That very night, Babylon is going to fall to King Darius. If you look at the beginning of chapter 6, we see King Darius, who is the king of the Medes and the Persians there, showing up as the new king. So between chapters 4 and 5, it's a year of about 20 years, and we talked about that last week. It's about two decades between the end of 4, the beginning of 5. During that 20 years, Neb dies, a couple other kings, then we get Nabonidus, and we get King Belshazzar under him. Then we have October 11th to October 12th, which is chapter 6, we see Darius is in power. Okay, so we see this timeline here. But notice for tonight, for October 11th, on this night when this party occurs, the Medes and the Persians are at the doorstep of here, King Billy's castle. And they are on the verge, and for actually about two months, they've been getting ready to attack Babylon. But whether it's hubris or ignorance, I don't, we, don't, we don't really know, historians don't know, in the middle of about to being attacked, then King Billy, he throws a party for everybody in his kingdom, for the royals in his kingdom. And he's like, man, you know what? He's either saying, we're about to die anyway, so let's party. Or he's saying, these folks can't break our walls. And we've already, already talked about the magnitude, the unscalability, if that's a word, of these enormous walls. So they begin to party. Here's what history shows us, though, is that night, October 11th, what happened was there was a river Euphrates that actually ran through the city of Babylon, and it was a, 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 a waterway that brought them the ability to transport things on the river. It brought them fresh water to drink. It was gated off, and so it had a gate going through one end of the river, going into the city. On the other end of the river, had a gate going through, so nobody could get in and out. But here's actually what the Medes and the Persians did. They went into that waterway and they blocked it off, upriver where it was going. So the water lowered to where it was about this deep. Then they could make it through, secretly through this waterway, go under the gate. Then they could infiltrate the city. Pretty crazy, huh? 
So historically, we know that to be true. That's probably how the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon. But that's about to happen in a matter of hours on this night. That's where chapter 5 picks up, looking forward to that time. Everybody good? Okay, historically, we're good. Now we're going to jump in the Bible and see why this matters for us today. Chapter 5, King Billy made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of them. Uh, Billy, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Neb, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that, they had, that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Sound familiar? Yeah, we see the absolute depravity of this man. So as we see, here's the opening scene. I'm going to walk through, these, through this chapter in different chunks, and we're going to see what's happening here. The first thing is that we see there's a great feast. If you look back at chapter one, a great feast is happening there. Now we may think, oh man, great feast, this is awesome. I was at a wedding last night and it was fun and we were able to eat delicious grilled cheese sandwiches and uh, I think I had a ginger ale, something like, you know, so we're able to eat and drink good food, good drinks, hang out, party. But here's actually what that word means there in the Aramaic and in the Hebrew as well. This word great feast is not just uh, a fun time to get together with friends. It actually means, a better translation is a raging kegger, okay? That's for us here in 2022, that's the better translation of this. So we have here this crazy feast, and, and we know that, here's why. Because normally, when they would have these feasts, if they were all in good order, the king wouldn't also bring his concubines. He would leave them at home. But he brought his concubines when a king did that, it was not so he could say, hey, look at my beautiful concubines. It was so that the nobles there, others in the kingdom, could enjoy his concubines. Everybody picking up what I'm laying down? Not good stuff. Okay, so we see this crazy orgy party happening here. All along, King Billy, he knows that the Medes and the Persians are just outside of his wall. He knows that. And yet in the face of that, he doesn't really care. We, we think, oh man, these folks are crazy. Can I ask you this? Does this still happen today? When, when we decide to remove any inhibitions to life in the face of the eternal, just consider, and maybe not so much for us, but especially our culture, we find every opportunity that we can to live it up, to party it up, to drink it up, to celebrate it up, to fornicate it up. Used to St. Patrick's Day, for instance, is based on a what? A, yes, it's even in the name. How does our culture now celebrate St. Patrick's Day? By celebrating what Christ has done through his saints. Through, no, the opposite of that. Like, let's see how much beer we can drink. The same thing for almost every single holiday. If you walked around my neighborhood last week during Halloween, what are folks doing? Handing out alcoholic drinks. Either in the process of or planning to get completely sauced. Like that's because you know why? It's a holiday. Because again, ironically enough, this same holiday that came from celebrating the saints who have gone before us, all saints Eve, all saints hollow, but now we're gonna use it for our own pleasure, our own purposes. We could use the same for Christmas, for Thanksgiving, New Year's Day, Valentine's Day. You could keep going through, I mean, Martin Luther King's birthday, President's Day. I don't know. Like, hey, this seems like a good idea. Let's celebrate with a few too many drinks. We see this in our same culture. We're given in to this complete debauchery. And then in verse number four, notice there what he does. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood. Now, what are they praising them from? They're praising them from out of these vessels that they got from Jerusalem. Notice the word father here. We're going to talk about this in just a minute. He got them from his father. Now, was, was Neb his actual father? No, it's like his great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, something like that. That word father is just an ancestor. He's saying, we got these things from Jerusalem. If you go back to chapter one, what did Neb bring over? He brought over the exiles, but he also brought over those things that were in the temple, these goblets, these cups, those things that were precious. Billy here is saying, I'm going to make a complete mockery of the creator of the universe. In your face, I'm going to raise a cup and say, 
the God of all creation, he can't do anything. Look at how great my kingdom is. I have a huge army right outside my walls. Look at how great I am. Drink it up. Nothing ever bad is going to happen to us. This is amazing. Nothing can stand in our way. It's almost like Burning Man meets the Met Gala. That's basically what it is. And some of you are like, I'm not sure what he's talking about. Okay, verse number five. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Notice real quick, this human hand, it's almost like um, uh, it from the Adams family. We just see this hand appear, right? Okay, so if I lost you on the burning man, now you're back, okay? So we imagine this hand, the fingers of the human hand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote, verse six. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Billy was greatly alarmed and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. When we see the hand of God appear, and it only appears a few times throughout the scriptures, writing of the Ten Commandments, Jesus takes the hand of God and writes it in the sand for the Pharisees and for the hypocrites around us. see. We see it here. This is called an anthropomorphism. Everybody say anthropomorphism. Y'all sound so excited about this. This is the hand of God showing up in physical form. This is literal deity in front of them showing up. This is a physical manifestation of God. His hand shows up and writes on the wall. I think what's interesting here, the writer of Daniel, he, he says, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Again, about 100, 130 years ago, archaeologists discovered this room. They uncovered this, this king's room where about a thousand people could fit. Guess what the walls were made out of? You, you got it. Good job. Plaster. Set you up for that one. Plaster. Guess what the plaster walls were opposite of? Plaster. Great job. It runs in the family. So we see here, again, the authenticity of, of Scripture. For years they thought, how would they know this was plaster? History still proves it. Look at verse number six. His thoughts were alarmed. Not the first king we've seen who was freaking out. When it says that his limbs gave way, uh, maybe a more literal translation of that would be that the knots of his loins were loosed. Yes, he soiled himself. Literally, the knots of his loins were loosed. He, it scared the poo out of him. And who can blame him? So he goes through, he says, man, this is crazy. Who can show me the interpretation? He brings in, again, all these folks that we've seen before, the astrologers, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, all these special folks. Can any of them help? And together, God's people said, no. And together, God's people said, no. They can't help, right? They don't, they don't know the interpretation of this. Verse number 10, we're going to pick up. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Is that going to happen? Nah, we got a few, few more minutes left. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Neb, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. What name does she use? Daniel. Whom the king called Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Now this queen could literally there in the text be this queen mother. It was probably, again, historically and looking at it linguistically is probably King Neb's wife. It probably wasn't actually Billy's wife. It means that this queen, she had just been passed for a while. She had been alive because she remembers Daniel. Not integral to the story, but so we understand who she is. She remembers 
the power and the spirit of God that she talks about here. There was a different spirit on this man. It was a spirit that we don't understand, the spirit of the gods. He could actually interpret. He had this gift that our astrologers and Chaldeans didn't have. There was something different about him. And if you look at verse number 12, she uses the name Daniel because he would not accept the renaming of him. He would not do it. The name that God has given me is Daniel. You can call me whatever you want to call me. But my identity is being in, is in the child of a king. That is my primary, ultimate identity. At this point, Daniel is about 80 years old here in this passage. He, I, I imagine he looks kind of like Clint Eastwood. And he just comes barreling in. You know, he's, he comes stumbling in. Think about Michael Jordan in a wizard's jersey, you know? Like he could dunk, but just barely. And I love Jordan, all right? It's, but he comes, he comes walking in, strutting in. Daniel's here. What you need? 80 years old. Some of Daniel's best work, the most memorable stories, a lot of Daniel's faithfulness comes after he had turned 80 years old. We see that next week, we're going to start the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Probably the most memorable known story of Daniel in the entire book. Friend, for as long as God gives us breath, no matter what age you are, for as long as God gives us breath, he has work for us to do. Daniel here is in his 80s, over 80 years old. So he comes walking in. I'm about to read a long passage of scripture. Everybody okay with that? Everybody good? All right. Just, what do they say? Sit in your haunches or something like that? Saddle up? I don't know. Then Daniel, here's the word of God. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they cannot show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave King Neb, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. Remember back to chapter 4? If you haven't been here the past couple weeks, go back and listen to that. This is chapter 4. He's re retelling the story of what happened to Neb because of his hubris. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. And he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and says it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, had not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. In the vessels of his house you have brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways? You have not honored. That's just the preview that Daniel gives us. He says here, this is what you have done. Notice if, you, if we look back quickly at this section, verses 13 and 14, we see here uh, that Daniel is brought in before the king. He's like, I recognize who you are. Friend, listen, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians tells us this in chapter four. If the spirit of God gives a revelation, it is only the spirit of God that can provide a translation. It is only the Spirit of God that can provide an interpretation. The Spirit of Babylon did not recognize the Spirit of God because it cannot. 
only the Spirit of God can provide an interpretation for the revelation of God. But notice here Daniel's response in verse 17. The king said right before that, if you can do this, I'm going to give you a, you'll be clothed in purple and have a chain of gold wrapped around your neck. You'll be third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel says, this may sound like a promotion, but guess what God I serve? A God, a king who is above you in heaven. And by the way, your kingdom, oh, it's only got like 25 minutes left anyway. Like, thanks for the promotion. This sounds awesome. I think I'm going to keep serving that king whose kingdom lasts forever. Come on, Billy. Remember the end of chapter 4? You know this stuff. Daniel goes on to say, you know this. You heard these stories. The queen knows these stories. Daniel retells this story, the story of God. We see here, here's where I said this father thinks. You look at verse number 18 with me. He calls him father again. George Hagel was uh, a uh, 18th century German theologian. He said this, the only thing that we have learned from history is that we have learned nothing from history. The only thing that we have learned from history is that we have learned nothing from history. That's coming from a secular source looking back over 200 years ago. We've learned nothing from history. And Daniel here is saying the same thing. Here's the story of what happened to your great granddad. Do you not remember this? How could you forget and you're going to fall into the same trap of the enemy that he fell into? Man, what is wrong with you? King Billy is cynical. He's unteachable. But then look at verses number 22 and 23. In these two verses, Daniel uses the word either you or your 14 times. 22 and 23. And you, his son, Billy, have not humbled your heart, though you knew this this is, and we can keep reading chapter verse 23. This is what the Old Testament calls a fool. This is the definition of a fool. You know the truth, you know what is right, yet you have hardened your heart. You have turned your back on the one true, holy, most high God. You've known all of these things to be true. You went to Sunday school, your, your grandparents took you to. You've been here every single Sunday. You even own a copy of the word of God. You know what you are supposed to do. You know how you're supposed to treat your wife. You know how you're supposed to give, how you're supposed to serve, how you're supposed to act as an employee. We know these things, yet we don't do them. What the Old Testament calls a fool. Now we get to verse 24, verses 24 through 28. Now we see the handwriting on the wall. Now who is the book of Daniel written for? It's, it's written for the exiles, for the people of God. Are the Babylonians ever going to read this book? Nope. Are the Medes and Persians probably ever going to read this book? Nope. So this is written for the people of God, even for us today, those of us who are exiles, and we all are, whether we remember that and are reminded by that or not. So these words are true and applicable for us today, thousands of years later. Verse 24, then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And these words are still there on the plaster probably, while he's saying this, I'm not saying today, 2022, but he's saying this, these words may still be on the plaster. The hand may have written them and then they're gone. And so Daniel's saying, remember these words that the hand of God wrote? Verse 25, and this is the writing that was inscribed, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. We could do a deep dive into what these words actually mean, how they were currency there in the kingdom and how he builds on these things and the age of Darius when he comes into being is 62 and how all these things kind of add up to 62. And it's kind of cool and interesting. You're like, yeah, I don't think so. Here's what I actually think matters. Okay, we have these three words here this morning, and I want us to see how these three words are applicable, again, for us as the people of God. Three words that he uses here. The first word that he, use, he uses is the word numbered. He says, your days are numbered. This is a reminder back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, what does Satan tell Adam and Eve there in the garden? He says, you shall not surely you shall not surely die. It, 
Is, is God's word actually true? No, no, you shall not actually die. And ever since then, the enemy has been trying to convince us that we can live in this oblivious state to death. I had this hourglass. I actually got it from Ikea. And that's why um, it doesn't actually have land on an exact time at any point. It's like two minutes and 10 seconds. Like, I don't know what, uh, what they're using in, I don't know, what Sweden, you know, wherever Ikea is from. But it's a, I know they use like different weights, and, um, but I guess they use different time too. I'm not sure. It never ends on exactly the right thing. But an hourglass, when we think about our days being numbered, it's similar to all the little metal beads that are in this hourglass. I can't add any more little gold beads to this. I can't take out any of the little gold beads that are inside of this hourglass. Nothing I can do to, to change this. And when I start it, Nothing I can do, I mean, flipping it over. But if I were to set this down, set this hourglass down, at no point can I say, oh, days, can you please slow down? Can, can some of y'all go back up the other way? No, nah, man, they're going. They're going. What does Psalm chapter 90 tell us? It says, teach us to number our days so that we may become wise. Wisdom comes from having our days numbered. Here's what I want us to see this morning. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. When you realize your days are numbered, you start living for the kingdom that will never end instead of the one in which you find yourself. When you realize that your days are numbered, you start living for the kingdom that will never end instead of the one in which you find yourself. You will understand that your days are filled with so many things that don't really matter. So many things that don't really matter. Here's how the 17th century uh, French philosopher, uh, mathematician, physicist, Blaise Pascal, maybe you've heard of him. Here's how he actually describes life. He said, and, and this describes life and many of the dis distractions in which we find ourselves. Again, uh, he would, and maybe he's a believer, but um, not, we were not like, hey, this guy's a solid theologian, mostly a secular source. Here's how he describes life and distractions. Very slim, similar to what we see here in chapter five of Daniel. He says, life is like this giant party. We got the DJ going. He's over here dropping fat beats. Everybody's dancing around. It's going awesome. We got food. We got drinks. It's amazing. All of a sudden, the door bursts open and this monster called death comes in and snatches somebody up and takes them out of the door. At that moment, everybody stops. The music, it scratches. Everybody stops eating and drinking. They look. They're freaked out. Death is here. It was here. It's gone. Somebody's missing. Death took them away. And then after a few minutes, they go back to dancing and they go back to eating and drinking. All right, this is awesome. And he says a few moments later, the monster death comes in and snatches somebody outside the door. And all of a sudden, everybody freezes. This is crazy. After a few minutes, they go back to dancing, eating and drinking. And this happens over and over and over. And nobody gives mind to how do we stop this? How do we cure this? How do we fight this monster? Nothing. He says the reason is because we are distracted by the party, by the life that is happening all around us. This is amazing. And I would ask you, friends, what distracts us in our lives? Maybe it's sports, hobbies, family, our jobs, entertainment, shows, money, all good things. I'm not saying don't do those things. I have all those things. Sometimes I have money. I love all those things. Like those things are great. But are they distractions or am I using those things for the sake of the kingdom of God? Our days are numbered. Secondly, the second word that he uses here is weighed. Tekel. Everybody say tekel. The, the idea here, the image here is that of a scale. I don't have a scale to show you, but it's, it's one of these scales that's balancing. Everything has to be perfect on both sides. There's a standard measure that you put on one side. On the other side, you weigh I guess whatever you want to weigh, like grains or rice or uh, gold or silver coins. I don't know. And so, as soon as it balances perfectly, then you know, okay, this is the standard measure. I have exactly what the standard measure is saying that I have. If it goes down this way, this is heavier. If it goes down this way, this side is heavier. Everybody understand? Here's what Hebrews chapter 9 says. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You are going to be weighed. And here's the way that the scales are set up. On one side is Jesus Christ, perfect son of God, righteous, holy, good, perfect, no sinner. 
On the other side is you. Now, if you're like me, you hate being judged and found wanting. You're a snowflake. Everybody in my generation younger, here, everybody gets a participation trophy. Hashtag, you do you. You're an individual. You're like, I can't believe these millennials. Hey, guess what generation gave us all the participation trophies? That's right, boomers. Go look in the mirror. So it's because we're like, I'm not doing a great job parenting. I hope they turn out okay. Here's a trophy. <laughs> okay, peace out. Okay, well, that's a different conversation for a different day. We hate being judged and found wanting. If you sin, I become the judge. But if I sin, I become a defense attorney. We, we, this is probably no, I've seen this no more clearly in my life than in the checkout line at Kroger when you have 10 items or less. Remember those checkout lanes, 10 items or less. When you go through the checkout lane and you see the person in front of you has like 13 items and I'm sitting there with my kid in the, in the buggy, because I'm a redneck, that's what we call it, right? With the buggy, I didn't know we called it anything else. It's called a shopping cart, okay? I'm sitting there with a buggy and I'm counting the number and I'm like, okay, Axel, remember how we counted 10, buddy? You're only two, you know, one and a half years old. One, two, three. Loud enough so that the person in front of me can hear what 10 means. You know what I'm talking about? Passive aggressive. 10, good job. Not 13, 10. Good job, Axel. You're only one year old and you get this. Good job. Not everybody in America understands this process, right? But when you're the one who has 13 items standing up there, you're like, well, I've got a case of Coke and I got a case of Diet Coke. It's basically all the same thing, you know? So I basically have 10 items. Let me see if I can make excuses for myself. You know what I'm talking about? We hate to be judged. I'm my, I am my best defense attorney, but I am your worst judge. I want you to understand your sin, your fallenness. And friend, when we're put in the scale with Jesus Christ, it does not look good. Our days are numbered. We will be weighed. You are not a mistaker. Listen, you're not just a mistaker in need of a life coach. You are a sinner in need of a savior. I don't think the word mistaker is right. In Microsoft Word, it was Squiggly line, underline red the entire week, okay? But you are not a mistaker in need of a life coach. You don't just need a little help, a little better direction. You are a sinner in need of a savior. Here's the truth that I want us to think about, to wrestle with just for a moment this morning. You are so bad that Jesus had to die for you. But he is so gracious that he was glad to die for you. I want you to sit with that for just a moment. What happens inside of you? You don't have to tell me. You can write it down. You can contemplate. You can think about it, meditate on that for a moment. But when you see those words, you are so bad that Jesus had to die for you, but he is so gracious that he was glad to die for you. What happens inside of you when you hear that? Praise. Two things happen for me. One is gratefulness. The second one is self-righteousness. As I wrote this in my notes this week, I thought, man, that, yeah, I am, so, I am so grateful that he died for me. But you know what? I actually don't think I'm that bad that Jesus had to. I'm not as bad as that guy. This lady over here, her theology stinks compared to mine. This guy over here, you won't believe what he wrote on social media. Have you seen their kids? We need to sit in the middle of this. The third thing that Daniel says here, this interpretation, again, for the people of God, not just for these folks, for sinners, is Perez. He says, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Your kingdom is divided. Look, let's keep reading. Look at verse number 29. Here's where I think this is important. Verse 29, then, then Billy gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Again, I imagine Clint Eastwood. Have you ever seen Clint, seen Clint Eastwood smile? No, you have not. So I imagine it's Clint standing there. He's just like, gold chain. Dang, I, I, don't, I didn't want this. I, did, I didn't need, I, I don't third ruler. I serve, I serve God. Y'all are going down, you know, <laughs> heaven up, Babylon down, like whatever. I'm, I'm sure I'll take it. 
But then notice verse number 30, that very night, these words should haunt us. That very night, King Billy the Chaldean was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. I told you that number 62 would come in. Chapter six, it pleased Darius, he's there, the ruler. That very night, this is a means of grace that Bill had his, he knew that he was about to die. The army was at his gate. Friend, you do not know when you will be divided, when your days will be numbered. You don't know when it will be your last day. Bill knew he was about to end. He could deny it all he wanted. Daniel comes and says, you're about to die. You don't, listen, turn, turn or burn, repent today, tonight, October 11th. Turn from this. He says, oh, you can be third in the kingdom. Great job. The question for you this morning, not when you get to heaven. The question is, you know, usually when you get to heaven and, you know, St. Peter asks you at the pearly gate, why should I let you into heaven? My question for you this morning, November 6th, as you sit here in this room, is what makes you worthy to get into heaven? What makes you worthy of heaven? Is it the fact that you've loved perfectly? Is it the fact that you haven't looked with lust? Is it the fact that you've given to the poor? Is it the fact that you showed up on Sundays, that you spent time in prayer, that you read your Bible? Is it the fact that you persevered to the end? What makes you worthy of heaven? And friend, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus had his days numbered. He stepped down from being one with the Father eternally and had his days numbered. He was weighed by sinners and his body and his flesh and his blood was literally divided for you, for you. He was numbered, weighed, and divided for you. So then when we stand before Christ one day, we either say, yeah, I did my best. Are you, are you okay with that? Or we say, thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. It is because of what you have done. Here's the last thing I want to say. The cross proved that man hated God enough to kill him. And God loved man enough to die for him. On the cross, Jesus was numbered and weighed and divided. And when we look at the scales there of history that are before us, that are going to be in front of us one day, it's not just the fact that Jesus says, I'm going to take all of your bad stuff off of your side of the scales. I'm not just going to clear your scale so that you can be balanced. No. Jesus takes all of his righteousness and all of his blessing and all of his identity and his oneness with the Father and his presence, and he heaps it upon our side. I was talking in the first steps class this morning. I said, sometimes our bank account, it goes in the negative Anybody there with me? Like, it's like negative Bank of America is like, hey, are you still alive? Like, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to do because I got money going out, but no money coming in. You know what I'm talking about? But it's not just the fact that your bank account, your spiritual bank account is in the negative because of sin. And Jesus says, I'm going to bring it back up to par, back up to zero. Okay, now you don't owe me anything. And it's back. At, no, Jesus takes what's in his bank account and loads it up into ours. That's the image that we have in 2022 of what a scale is. And now when we go to our bank account, it's full of his righteousness and his mercy and his grace and his character and his spirit. And we can never do anything to depreciate that. It never runs out. It's overflowing all because of who Jesus is. Amen? That's good news for us this morning. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Jesus Christ takes all of our sinfulness on himself. And he grants us all of his righteousness so that when the Father looks at us, he sees the finished work of Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you would say, I've never made that trade with Jesus. I've never given him my sin. I've never received his righteousness. I've never repented of my sin. I've never believed in faith. And I would say, do it this morning, even there while you're sitting there right now, whatever time it is. Repent of building your own kingdom. Respond to the mercy and the grace of Jesus because your days are numbered. You will be weighed. This life, this flesh, it will be divided. 
Maybe you say, man, you don't understand. Like I've repented, I've tried, I'm trying real hard. I, I think I've got faith, but you don't understand how messed up and dirty I am, friend. Can I tell you that the righteousness of Christ is strong enough to cleanse you from whatever you think is holding you back. The grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ goes further and deeper and is higher and is stronger than anything that you bring to the cross. You cannot out sin the mercy of our Savior. And if you're a believer here this morning, you say, yeah, I've responded in faith and I, I think I got everything going well. I, I would challenge you this morning. As, as we look here at, at King Neb and King Billy, and we see that there are so many things that the world has to offer us. Friend, don't worry about being on top of this kingdom, of this world. Pursue a kingdom that is going to last forever. Follow a king who is going to reign forever, eternally. Live for Jesus. Live for eternity. That is my passion, my plea for all of us here who call ourselves a church. Respond to the good news that Jesus Christ, he was numbered, he was weighed, he was divided for us. Every Sunday we celebrate communion. It's this meal of, of bread and it's juice. Jesus takes our sinfulness for, from us and he redeems us. He redeems us. He pulls us out of the mire where we don't have to look back at our father the same way that Billy did back looking at Neb. We, we, as we were born, look back at Adam and Eve and we're like, man, our first father, man, what in the world? We're all born into sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ redeems us and he gives us a brand new father, one who is perfect and holy and just and righteous. He redeems us from all of our sinfulness. So please, this morning, as we respond tangibly and physically with these pieces of bread that represent the divided body of Christ for us and the blood that was shed to cover us in our righteousness. Respond by repenting of sin. Respond by looking forward to the day when we will be with the king who drank the cup of wrath for us. As we raised it in his face and we said, look at how awesome we are. He said, I still love you. I'm still going to die for you. I want you to respond in faith to me. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to call you to a better kingdom with a better king. Respond to the warning that we have here in Daniel chapter five and respond to the hope that we have in Jesus. I invite you to join me now for communion.